Amen. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew, chapter 4. We're going to take a look at a passage that I'm certain with which you're familiar. On the temptations of Jesus. And uh, as you turn, I do want to recognize uh, that my daughter Grace is also here with us this morning. And that my daughter Mary is at work, but she said that she might be able to watch online. And so... Uh, if you are, hello, Mary, and glad that you're here with us today. I'm going to try to do something a little bit different today. It's the reason that I brought uh, a bunch of papers and notes with me that I get some things right and don't misstate some things. Um, I'm going to make an effort this morning to show uh, to, to many of you who aren't engaged with us very much why the School of Church and Family Ministries is so absolutely vitally important to the church, not just to its work, but to its very life, to its expression of its theology, and to the discipleship of the believers that make up the body of Christ. There are many churches, there are churches out here with great theology that have wonderful preaching from the pulpit who are orthodox in every way and yet in their ministries and in their education programs they follow the philosophies the theories and the programs that were originated uh, largely by those uh, who are unbelievers often atheists this folds over into the lives of the members of the church the members of the church carry these ideas with them just as much as they carry the theology in their minds and in their hearts. Maybe more so because they are connected to the ministries of the church and the educational programs of the church and they experience those far more than they experience the preaching of the church. And so it is absolutely vital that we in the School of Church and Family Ministries, formerly known as the School of Educational Ministries or Religious Education or whatever it is that we're called, it is absolutely vital that we be theologians, that we be men and women who understand what the Bible says, that we be men and women who seek to derive not only the content of what we teach, but exactly how we teach and how we go about our ministries from God's Word. And I wish I had um, six or eight chapel messages. It would make this much easier. So I only am able to choose one particular theory, one particular philosophy that has been uh, so influential in the world and consequently so influential in the church oftentimes and let us see a little bit of what Jesus has to say about it. Last week, I went to a place, the name of which I will not tell you. I was in a meeting that I will not describe to you. I was with some people that I cannot name to you, but I can tell you a little bit about their future. Even today, many of them are heading out all over the world. They are going to places where they will encounter danger. 
not the kind of danger that we encounter by walking across the street in America, but the real kind of danger by people who do not like what they stand for and who do not like what they say and who do not like the impact that the gospel has upon a nation. They are going to places where they will be deprived. There are some even today who are going to be trained to learn how to live without running water, without electricity, without easy sources of food, how to survive so that they might carry the gospel to certain places that need it. These people are you. No, not today. Maybe not next week. But maybe in January or February Maybe next year. Perhaps if I were to go to this type of meeting often enough, I would see many of you pass through as I saw some that I knew there. Those who were taking their children to places that no parent would, in their right mind, want to take their children. And so what does that say about us. What does that say about you? I think it says almost everything that really needs to be said. But the world is working against you, and the world is working against us, and the world is working against the gospel, and the world is attacking the church because the church is the center of God's plan for the spread of the gospel to the nations. I want to tell you just a little bit, just a piece, just a sliver of the attacks that are being made on the church. The dominant humanistic secular worldview that exacts allegiance in education, both outside and often inside the church, rides on the winds of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. When we say that certain needs must be met, such as a person must know that we care before we can share the gospel, we ride not on scripture, but on Maslow. When we focus on felt needs in our preaching or on entertainment and food before we can get to discipleship, we follow Maslow. When we focus on ourselves and our own personal needs, either before or while we focus on the Trinity and on God's requirements of us, we follow Maslow. And when music leaders, that's right, Leo, I didn't want to leave you out. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> when music leaders focus on individuals having peak experiences rather than the congregation confessing and professing the great truths of Scripture, together we Follow Maslow. Let me read what Maslow wrote. The more we learn about man's natural tendencies, the easier it will be to tell him how to be good. Did you get that? Natural tendencies to tell him how to be good. 
how to be happy, how to be fruitful, how to respect himself, how to love, how to fulfill his highest potentialities. The thing to do seems to be to find out what one is really like inside, deep down as a member of the human species and as a particular individual. He also wrote this, human life will never be understood unless its highest aspirations are taken into account. Growth, self-actualization, the striving toward health, the quest for identity and autonomy, the yearning for excellence, and other ways of phrasing the striving upward must by now be accepted beyond question as a widespread and perhaps universal human tendency. The Lord seems to think differently. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Maslow sought a path for a utopian state in this life alone. He was a, born a Jew, he became an atheist. He had no place for God. He saw no place for an afterlife. But he sought utopia here. He identified needs in man and he taught that if man's needs were met, man would be able to self-actualize, to reach his fullest potential as a human being. Quote, a fuller knowledge of, and listen to this, acceptance of the person's own intrinsic nature. as an unceasing trend toward unity, integration, or synergy within the person. With sufficient numbers of self-actualized people, utopia, heaven could be established on earth. Let's take a look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you have the slide up here. It's actually a pyramid and each uh, it begins at the bottom, and each level, according to Maslow, must be met before a person moves on to begin to meet the next level of needs. And so it begins with physiological needs, such as food and water and warmth and rest. There are others, including sex, that go into that list and moves on up. Once those are all met, and then we have safety needs for security and for safety that we, we meet. And then once those are met, we begin to meet the needs for intimate relationships, belongingness and love and friends. After that, we have esteem needs. We need to feel prestige and have a feeling of accomplishment. And then after that, we can begin to self-actualize. We can begin to reach our fullest potential. This is what Maslow believed. He believed that man naturally progressed through all of these. He found out later on, as we'll see, that that was not true. But if you look at these, look carefully at these, you'll see that for Maslow, all that prevents us from being good and moral and upright and fulfilled is external, outside of us, food, safety, friends, esteem of others, etc. For Jesus, all that prevents us from being good and moral, fulfilled, is internal. It is myself. It is my sin. It is my rebellion. That is all that prevents 
me from all of these things. And so, this morning, as we look at this list of needs, we see some common sense. We see that the bottom of the hierarchy makes some sense. It fits the world. We see to some extent the scriptures that we read. We see safety needs and physiological needs. Christians are to meet people's legitimate needs. We do not let people starve when we could feed them. We do not let people die when we have the means to heal them. We do not leave people injured, lying injured along the side of the road. We do not walk away when people seek our aid. My church today is providing disaster relief in Rockport. That relief is needed. It is a need. But may I say to you that without the gospel, meeting someone's needs does not get them a step closer to heaven. Self-actualization is not a need. It is a lie. It is a wish that Maslow based upon his humanistic religious convictions that man is innately good. And here is the rub. Here is the difference. The difference is whether man is innately good and needs to be released or whether man is innately sinful with a sin nature that must be forgiven, that must be redeemed, that must be cleansed, that must be renewed in Christ. And at the higher levels, we begin to see it clearly with self-actualization, but also with esteem needs. The Bible does not list esteem as a need. In fact, the Bible warns against thinking too highly of ourselves. And Dr. Patterson, I'm just trying to help you with that when I introduce you. <laughs> it's all very biblical. Our great need is not to receive esteem for ourselves. Our great need is to esteem Christ. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The great tragedy of this world is not that we do not receive the accolades that we should. The great tragedy of this world is that Jesus is not recognized for who he is. And ultimately, if we're looking at belonging and relationship needs and love needs, the only relationship I actually need is a relationship with Jesus Look with me in the scripture. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. 
Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Over time, Maslow came to recognize that his hierarchy, his desire for people to self-actualize and for utopia to be realized on earth was failing. He began to grasp for what was it that he could add to it. He, by his own recollection, by his own observance, he said that perhaps only 1% of the entire human race would ever actually self-actualize. So he created, added to his model, and we see the second slide up here, you will see some additions. He added cognitive needs and aesthetic needs. By the way, if you look at cognitive needs, you begin to understand why it is that we have school breakfast and why it is we have school lunch and why it is that students have to receive encouragement and self-esteem and why they can't be failed and why all of these other things because you have to have all these bottom four fully in place before a student can even begin to think to learn. It's amazing to me how half the children I know in Africa learn anything. They come to school without breakfast and they go home not to find much for lunch. And yet they learn, yet they grow. Many of them are growing in Christ in ways that our children do not quite comprehend. Later as his dreams for utopia Faded Maslow wrote, without the transcendent and transpersonal, we get sick, violent, and nihilistic, or else hopeless and apathetic. We need something bigger than we are to be awed by and to commit ourselves to in a new, naturalist, empirical, listen, non-churchly sense. To the extent that all mystical or peak experiences are the same in their essence and have always been the same, all religions are the same in their essence and always have been the same. When we seek experience over life change, feelings over truth, the presence of God over obedience to Christ's commands, we follow Maslow. Let me just read for you some of the terms and concepts. When you hear these, you might want to think of Maslow. Perceived or felt needs of an individual, seeking significance, self-esteem, self-worth, self-confidence, needs-based psychology, peak experiences, self-fulfillment, achieving one full potential, living beyond the ordinary, quest for identity and autonomy, and health in terms of personal well-being. These things don't match up with who many of you are. People who have made the decision to forsake all and to follow Christ. People who have made the decisions that the things that you think you need are not needs after all, but that your need, your one and your only need is to walk in Christ, to serve him, to be obedient in him, to follow him to the end of your days. 
and that in him you will trust that he will provide whatever needs you might actually have. But we do not seek our needs first, we seek Christ and Christ alone. You see, Maslow met Jesus. The story is told in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is playing the part for, of Maslow for us here. And I want you to remember something as we look at this. In Hebrews 4.15, the Bible says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let's go back to the scripture with me, if you will, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I don't uh, want to stop here and, and, and preach for a while, but I will just uh, encourage you to note that when you pray the Lord's Prayer next time, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that you might remember this verse. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, 40 days and 40 nights is a long fast. In fact, medically, technically, you're probably not supposed to live with fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted for 40 days, for 40 nights, and afterward, duh, he was hungry. I don't know about you. I've done a little bit of fasting in my time. I'm hungry in 10 minutes. By the third day, I'm about to die. <laughs> Jesus went 40 days, so he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, I want you to observe something. Can we put the, sec the first slide back up for a second? The very, the, or the third one, first or the third? I want you to notice something. I want you to watch this because what's happening is that Satan is going to walk up Maslow's hierarchy of needs with Jesus. He's going to walk right up the, the pyramid. In fact, it's not Satan using Maslow's ideas, but I wonder whether Maslow might have been using Satan's ideas as he began to try to teach us that somehow by following these needs, by, by giving over to these perceived needs that we have, we could somehow achieve something that God has promised only he can provide. But the first need he brought to him was his physiological need. He said, Jesus, you're hungry. That's obvious. Turn these stones to bread. Meet your physiological needs. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The Bible doesn't say, don't ever turn stones to bread. Isn't that a common hermeneutic that we hear out in the churches today? If the Bible doesn't give a specific command not to do it, it's okay. But Jesus answered him, and he said to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus did not deny that our physical bodies need food that we need to eat, but he says there is a priority here. And the priority is the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not some of the words, not a few of the words, not picked and chosen words, but every word that proceeds from the mouth 
of God. And Jesus implies in this that our physical need for hunger can be assuaged in our investment in the word of God. That it is like food for us. We wonder. We say, how did Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights? How did he do it? It could have been that he invested himself fully and he ate and was fed on the very words from the mouth of God. Is this a foreign concept to us? Do we somehow have the idea that Oh, the physical's over here, and the spiritual's over here. And you see, they're two different things, and they aren't connected. There's no real connection between the physical and the spiritual. If that's the case, then we don't have a Savior. Jesus is the embodiment and the incarnation of the connection between the physical and the spiritual. There is no disconnect. In Christ, it all became one. The devil took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see, Satan tempted him. If we can have the pyramid back. Satan tempted him, look again, with safety needs. Do we have it? Do we have the slide back? Notice he was safety needs. If you jump off this temple, God will prove that his word is true and that you really are safe. And once you experience it, once you test God, once you experience what God says for yourself, then you will know that you'll be safe. No matter what happens to you, you will always be safe. He tested him with belonging needs. Who was going to capture him? The angels were going to come and they were going to capture him. They were going to wrap him up. They were going to remind him that he belongs to them. He may well have been tempting him with esteem needs because if Jesus did jump off the temple and people saw him and Jesus was taken up by the angels, people would have looked at him with awe and they would have esteemed him highly. But Jesus had something to say about that. He said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Maybe we can learn something here. You see, could it be that we went put, when we put our safety and our security, our personal safety and our personal security ahead of Christ, ahead of God's will for our life, whenever we put our intimate relationships and our friends ahead of God's will for our life, whenever we put our desire to be esteemed ahead of God's will for our life, whenever we begin to go out and want to experience these things for ourselves rather than to depend and trust and place our lives in God's hands, is it possible that we simply are tempting him? Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, we'll get to that in just a second, 
But he said, he showed him the, all the kingdoms of the world and he showed them their glory. If, you, if we can get the slide back again. You see, esteem needs the glory. Jesus would have prestige. He would have a sense of accomplishment. You see, <clears throat> you see there the self-actualization. Jesus, Jesus would have achieved his full potential. You see the peak experience that Maslow sought later on. Jesus would have received the glory. What a spiritual high it would have been for him to have received all of this to become master over all that is. I'm not getting into a lot of the details like what could Satan do and what couldn't Satan do, but obviously Jesus did not rebuke him when he said, all of this is mine to give to you. Jesus could have taken it. It could have been easy. It could have been quicker than God's plan. He could have had it in his hand. He could have received that entire pyramid all in one fell swoop. And yet Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, when we seek esteem and we seek to achieve our own potential and we seek peak experiences, glory and transcendence and spiritual highs, we are worshiping someone or something other than a holy God. Worship is not what we seek for ourselves. Worship is what we lay before So Jesus, in answering Satan, he described what our true needs are. He said, first, true need is to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the place to start. This is not the place to indulge your pet passages. This is the place to read every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's from Genesis 1, that includes Leviticus, that includes the genealogies, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And to not only read it, but to live by it. Jesus says our true need is to act only in concert with who God is. What his plan is for us. And to submit ourselves fully in worship of God alone. For Maslow, the operative word is self. Man must live to reach the goal of self. For Jesus, the operative word is self-denial of death that leads to life. Man must die. You and I must die. In fact, we must take up our cross daily follow Jesus. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have some problems in the church. If you would indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to share how I see a few of them. Too often our youth are consuming more pizza than the word of God. 
Too often our children are being fed Bible thoughts and stories from Bible rewritten, from the Bible rewritten by others more than every word from God's mouth. Too often our senior adults are investing far more in meeting their belonging needs in Branson than in discipling the discipling needs of the children and young adults in their church. Too often we are more focused on whether a church meets our needs than on the people who need to know Christ in us. Too often our prayers are focused far more on his meeting our needs than on our exaltation of our glorious Savior and our gratitude for him, for his sacrifice and for his grace. Too often parents are sending their children into the teeth of the lion because they think their child needs the name of the college, name on the college diploma more than their child needs to walk closely with our Lord. Too often parents are discouraging their children from going to serve in the hard places because neither their nor their children's needs as they perceive them will be met. Some of you sitting here have been discouraged by your parents. Christian parents, church-going parents. Too often we fear the danger of missions and the embarrassment of evangelism more than we fear the Lord of the Great Commission and of the judgment we one day will face. Too often pastors and staff spend far more time ensuring the needs of the congregation are met than engaging the congregation to forget its needs and to go about the Great Commission. Too often churches quibble over their needs for money far more than they pray over their need for the Holy Spirit to empower them to obey Christ and to reach the world for him. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we must stop focusing on our physiological needs and start focusing on his provision through his word. We must stop focusing on our safety needs and start focusing on our death and his life. We must stop focusing on our belonging needs and start focusing on expanding his family and kingdom. We must stop focusing on our desire for esteem and start focusing on his greatness and glory. We must stop focusing on our experiences and fulfillment and start focusing on his call and commands. We must stop focusing on ourselves and we must start focusing on Jesus, our Lord and our God. I keep this in my Bible. It was in the New York Times in 2003. It comes from China. She never broke when she was tortured with beatings and electrical shocks, and even when she was close to death, she refused to disclose the names of the members of her congregation or sign a statement renouncing her faith, her Christian faith. But now, months later, Ma Yuking abruptly chokes and her eyes well with tears as she recounts her worst memory. As she was being battered in one room, her son was tortured in the next so that each could hear the other's screams as encouragement to betray the church. They wanted me to hear his cries, she said, sobbing. It broke my heart. Ma a steel-willed woman of 54 was brave enough to tell her story of the persecution that Christians sometimes still face in China. Dozens of members of her church are still imprisoned and those who are free are under tight scrutiny. But several church members dared to meet me for a tense interview after we all sneaked one by one into an unwatched farmhouse near Zhangjiang, a city in central China, 650 miles south of Beijing. It goes on to say that China is freer today let me say it's becoming less free now every day.
Ma said she and her family were sleeping one night in May 2001 when police burst into her house and arrested her, her and her son and her daughter-in-law. The police left her five-year-old grandson alone with nobody to take care of him. A 27-year-old friend and fellow Christian named Yu Zhangju, who had dropped by the house, was promptly arrested as well. Yu died in custody, and one can surmise that she was beaten to death. According to interviews with church members and statements smuggled out of prison, dozens of church members were arrested at the same time and were beaten with clubs, jolted with cattle prods, and burned with cigarettes. When they fainted, buckets of water were poured on them to revive them. Interrogators stomped on the fingers of male prisoners and stripped young female prisoners naked and abused them. They used electrical prods all over me, Ma said, fighting back the tears again. They wanted to humiliate us. I had assumed that Ma, like all the other church members I interviewed, would not want her name published. No, she said firmly. Use my name. I'm not afraid. Police are afraid of foreign pressure, but I'm not afraid of them. This is what some of you will face. I don't know who, but I have no doubt In the new Mathena Hall, there's a walk of martyrs being put up. May I read you just a list of some of the names as we leave? And as you think about this list, think about your needs. And think about the possibility that your name might be added to this list one day. And think about the church members and the youth and the young adults that you lead and that you teach. Think about what might be required of them. Archie Dunaway, 1978, Rhodesia. Larry Thomas Elliott and Donna Jean Elliott, 2004, in Iraq. Kathleen Garrity, 2002, in Yemen. Rufus Gray, 1942, in the Philippines. Cheryl Harvey, 2012, in Jordan. Landrum Holmes, 1861, in China. Charles W. Hood, Jr., 1998, in Colombia. Bill Hyde, 2003, in the Philippines. Bill Cohn, 2002, in Yemen. David McDonald, 2004, in Iraq. Sidney Mizell, 2008, in Afghanistan. Martha Myers, 2002, in Yemen. Paul and Nancy Potter, 1971, the Dominican Republic. Elizabeth Libby Center, the mother, and Rachel Janet Center, the daughter, 1986, in Liberia. Ronnie Thomas Smith, 2013 in Libya.
Bill Wallace, 1951, in China. Karen Watson, 2004, Iraq. John Westrup, 1880, in Mexico.